0: I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when you could live in the East Village on a part-time waiter's salary and still afford to go clubbing, when sushi restaurants had smoking sections and MTV was commercial-free, when you could rub shoulders with A-listers but still have no place to post it. I am your narrator, David Klein, and I Am The Fly. In this episode, what my boss and I have here is a failure to communicate, but tonight, With the help of Burt Reynolds, maybe we can start a brand new working folder.
1: David. Now David. David. Now David. Now David. 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 Now David, that's got to be booked now.
0: After things crap out at Disney, landing at ICM looks like a modest step in the right direction. ICM is one of the three major talent agencies, and the literary department is the crown jewel of the company's New York office. Amanda Binky Urban is perhaps the only widely known literary agent in the country, famous for making dazzlingly lucrative deals for her clients, established stars like John Irving, ascendant ones like Donna Tartt, and more than a few objects of outright reverence like Raymond F.N. Carver and Cormac Bloody McCarthy. Esther Newberg, on the same power hallway, is just as heavy a hitter, presiding over the likes of Pulitzer Prize winners like Seymour Hirsch and flagrantly commercial entities like Don Imus, who likes to have her on his nationally syndicated radio show where they goof genially. Plenty of other authors I love, most notably Spalding Gray, whose memoir Impossible Vacation I just read and loved are attached to agents along this tastefully lit stretch. Too bad my services are required just around the corner, in a fluorescent zone that accommodates a pair of exposed cubicles, the occupants of which serve at the pleasure of the agency's primary theatrical agents. Where the literary department attracts the savviest, most charming, yet ballsy deal-makers, the theatrical department consists of febrile eccentrics who lord over fiefdoms of theatrical properties with a zeal that reaches to the cheap seats. If the literary agents fail to project a strictly literary vibe, the theatrical agents make up for it by being theatrical as hell.
1: Why are people gay all the night and day feeling as they never felt before? What is this thing that makes them sing?
0: My boss, Mitch Douglas, a Georgia native who once represented Tennessee Williams, looks and sounds like he was born to do that very thing.
1: A letter going to Michelle LaPotre. Dear Michelle, this is to let you know that I have written at Gertrude Walker at her last known address but have not received a response. I am keeping this contract in an open pending file. In an open pending file. In an open
0: pending file. When I interviewed for the job, he spoke with pride of having browbeaten more than a dozen male assistants into quitting. But he was hopeful I could flourish in an admittedly gloves-off environment. Mitch is witty, bitchy, shrewd, and at least once a day, completely inappropriate. These days, it might well be characterized as workplace harassment, but in the early 90s, it was an expected part of the job I had just signed up for. Toiling in the cubicle next to mine is the assistant for Bridget Ashenberg, the other major power in the theatrical department. Rotund, shrill, somewhere between 50 and 80, Bridget issues directives in a florid, formal, vaguely British voice shaped in strict European boarding schools. The representative for dozens of outsized playwrights and theatrical figures, people like Arthur Miller, Edward Albee, and Wendy Wasserstein, she seems to have no life outside her work. Bridget operates strictly with Mad Men-era technology. A telephone, an anvil-sized manual typewriter, and a Rolodex. Starting with Kobo Abe, author of Women in the Dunes, it's crammed with contact information going back decades, from marquee names to hapless functionaries at music licensing firms. Look on your wheel! She shrills, exhorting her assistant to plumb her most prized piece of equipment. Bridget orders the same lunch five days a week from the no-frills Chinese place on street level, known internally as Stinky Noodle. Chicken parts. Now, if you've ever seen this on a menu, you probably shuddered and moved on. For Bridget, it's an everyday thing. Christopher, where are my chicken parts? I ordered them, Bridget. Well, where are they? Bridget types everything out herself, before it's typed out on letterhead by her long-suffering amanuensis. In a nod to modernity, she uses yellow post-it notes for this task, even employing whiteout when necessary, so that Christopher suffers no confusion as to her meaning. Because she has such a vast and wide ranging clientele, her office is in a state of constant siege by those seeking permission to mount new productions of plays and musicals she represents. A Hungarian production of Greece, two performances of Claire Booth Luce's The Women in La Jolla. They all have to go through Bridget, who is fiercely protective, dispatching lethal memos as if from a battlefield bunker on behalf of those she's sworn a blood oath to protect. To one of the guys who wrote Greece. You are being taken for a chump, my friend, and I won't have it. To Catherine Sheehy, American Theatre Magazine. Dear Miss Sheehy, I have tried twice, yesterday and today, to reach you by phone, but it was hopeless. You have remarkably stupid people answering the phones. You had called Arthur Miller to ask for his social security number. It is 503... 503- to a longtime contact at the Mexican Writers Guild. Tell Lorenzo Becker that I will grant him one final extension, for which he must pay an additional $1,000. I will not put up with these ridiculous delays. You know the old American saying, Louise, shit or get off the pot. You may quote me. At least Bridget wields her high-grade chutzpah on behalf of icons. Mitch has a list only a mother could love. His bread and butter is nonsense, the shticky off-Broadway musical and mega-franchise in the making. The other biggie is a different franchise. Calinetics, arrival to the Jane Fonda workout tape.
1: Hello, I'm Callan Pinckney and welcome to beginning Calinetics. Turn around to the front and stretch up and over. Tighten behind, tip the pelvis up, lift knee three inches from the floor
0: Now gently back and forth,
1: left elbow out, stretch your right side up as high as you can, stretch over.
0: He is pushing some quality works by talented authors and playwrights. William Poundstone, for example, a multi-genre writer whose biggest secrets features a fascinating dive into the U.S. Navy's bizarre homoerotic equator crossing rituals. One of my biggest coups at ICM is querying Spy magazine on behalf of Poundstone, getting a yes from the snarkiest of all magazines, and making the cover with a doctored image of John F. Kennedy wearing lipstick and the headline, "Was JFK a drag queen?" But the market demands hot commodities, and Mitch is short on explosive new talent. He's currently hyping a squared-jawed dog trainer, Judy Carn, aka the Sakatumi girl from Laughing.
1: I'm talking about television when I say
0: tune in and turn on. And the supremely untalented playwright Stanley Michael Hunthausen. With Murderer's Row just around the corner, hitching my star to the Broadway Danny Rose of ICM lit department feels like a slap. Soon enough, it becomes clear that, regardless of where I had landed within the agency, I'm never going to become an agent. Or even... Parlay my experience into a tangentially related career. Mitch has seen that I have an eye for good writing, but the business is all about contracts and structuring deals, and I lack the wit, desire, and discipline to force myself to learn such a complex science. I'm not Gordon Cotto, the department's newest member. Gordon became an agent after putting in a few solid years of barely leaving the office, so fierce was his desire to internalize the ins and outs of publishing contracts and agency work. I had a meeting with him once in his smoky dark office. We talked about Liz Fair and the guitar sound on 11th Dream Day's beat while he smoked a hand-rolled cigarette. An author called, and as I listened to him discussing a certain section that had been rewritten per his suggestions, I thought, what a great job he has. But in order to enjoy that end of it, you have to be a businessman too. I know myself well enough to see that I am not one of those. I stick around ICM because it's a place from which bright, talented people are poised to spring. And as someone whose talents haven't risen to the surface quite yet, it makes sense, at least on paper, for me to work here. It pays the bills, and it sounds fairly interesting when people ask me what I do, as long as I de-emphasize the menial tasks and talk up the agency stuff. And having a decent story to tell in New York City, one that doesn't elicit a conciliatory wince from whoever you're telling it to is essential. Everyone I know right now is up to something cool. My brother is En Fuego in London, having done Buzz for MTV and a bunch of edgy music videos, including the first single from U2's Octum Baby, The Fly. <laughs> Noni has survived her first major debacle, backing out of Godfather 3, and come back strong with her first $100 million grossing movie, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And she has a new one coming out, directed by Scorsese. My old pal from Tanafly, Tommy Roberts, is in Brazil, living in neo-colonial splendor. My buddy and former roommate, Dave Schlackett, having rebounded from the loss of Marissa Tomei, who's in her full My Cousin Vinny glory by now.
1: Yeah, you blend
0: has gotten into construction management with Steve, and their company is putting up clubs all over New York, including the ultra-hot 10th Street Lounge. Hell, my former roommate Dave's younger brother has a movie coming out. An arthouse queer-centric take on the notorious Leopold and Loeb thrill-kill murder, no less. And it's getting plotted to the New York Times. 1923, I've waited six weeks since our last crime. ICM enables me to at least allege that I'm on some kind of career path, and it isn't without its pleasures. My fellow assistants, most of them a year or two out of college, are up on everything and going places. Some are accomplished writers, already on a literary path, and working on novels. Everyone's a reader, and conversations are lively. A dog-eared paperback copy of A Confederacy of Dunces made the rounds recently, and all of us sat around in the common room bandying lines from its unhinged protagonist, Ignatius P. Riley, over styrofoam containers of stinky noodle. Meanwhile, proximity to fame, fortune, and ego, as I already know, is often surrealistically entertaining. The stream of self-important inter-office memoranda, for example, serves up literary gold daily. It is very important that we come up with some motion picture activity for MC Hammer. More profound is the faint whiff of power I derive from presiding over the mail, a zone where manuscripts, both solicited and not, mingle with contracts, invitations to readings, concerts, premieres, and fan mail of all stripes, making me privy to the infinite variety of human experience that will one day be provided by the internet. In one morning, I might encounter an egregiously apologetic Japanese play producer, I am very sorry for the trouble caused by this unsuitable happening. I apologize most profusely for the inconvenience you have sustained." A high school student requesting a piece of Eartha Kitts garbage for a dubious social studies project. All you have to do is dip into your wastebasket and send something that is representative of yourself, or an inquiry from a man in Jakarta directed to deceased writer Gordon Merrick volunteering his services as a man-servant. You'll have to imagine that one for yourself. Of course, there are unsolicited book proposals of all stripes, and Mitch has seen them all.
1: Good guy gets in bad guy's body and vice versa. Period, inevitably, the woman looks down and sees her penis for the first time and pees all over, quote, himself, close quote, and everybody else in the room
0: I get to know Edwin Newman, the NBC news veteran and foremost authority on proper English usage, through a few weeks worth of phone calls regarding the reissue of two of his books. Newman, a celebrated lamenter of the lost art of precise language, devoted an entire chapter in Strictly Speaking to his deep loathing for the phrase, it is incumbent upon me.
1: Is everything beginning to lose its meaning. I think that happens, yes, and I, I think one can easily find examples of, let's take the, w- the word that has become tremendously popular, major. Now, you can pick up the New York Times, for example, and you can see in a single article eight or nine different things referred to as major. Now, if everything is major, nothing is minor, and if nothing is minor, then by definition nothing is major. Now, what we are in the process of doing is destroying the word major.
0: He's a curmudgeon, to be sure, but a gentle man of learning and deeply held convictions. By the end of our dealings, I'm getting pretty relaxed about picking up the phone and bantering with this beacon of formal, tasteful discourse. One morning, phone rings, and it's Ed. Is this David Klein? Yes, it's me. I mean, uh, it is I? Either one is fine in this context, he replies with a chuckle. We finish our last bit of business, and that's that. Ten minutes later, (coughs) Mr. Klein? Yes? Ed Newman. Hello? It is I is is correct. correct. Ah, fucking Ed. I recall one other moment of surpassing sublimity. The Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Arthur Miller is awaiting the completion of some contractual paperwork, and just to kill time, he starts to walk the office floor. This is long before all that open office stuff. ICM's layout is a simple rectangle, with two long corridors reserved for the powerful and two ignominious short ends for the worker bees. A few times every hour, I push back from my crevice and coast on deck chair wheels into the hallway, using just enough force to ensure I'll miss the file cabinets on the other side of the aisle. With a rightward glance, I have a direct view through Mitch's doorway, where Arthur Miller is just about to pass but something causes the great man of letters to pause and do a theater-worthy double-take. I know what stopped him. Propped in Mitch's picture window is a life-sized black-and-white cardboard cutout of Miller's former wife. Now, it's not like seeing images of Marilyn Monroe is an uncommon occurrence for Arthur Miller, but this time, the sight of this promotional souvenir for a compendium by the photographer Bernard of Hollywood, which Mitch is pitching as a coffee table book, hits him with the poignancy of one of his plays. He stops dead has to collect himself. Coming off flat feet, he summons his gait, which gives me time to power-scoot back into my nook before I'm spotted. The breaking point comes after a night out in the city. It starts at an industry cocktail party at the Museum of Modern Art, in honor of noted conceptual artist Burt Reynolds. Mitch is always getting invited to these things, but he's never asked me along before and I admit to feeling a little excited about the Burt soiree. Despite the smirks, the lame comedies, the paparazzi punch-outs, to me he's still bone-arrow Burt kicking redneck ass in Deliverance. I ask Mitch, why the big bash for Burt? And why at MoMA? The man's desperate. No one takes him seriously. (laughs) We arrive at the party, and I get a couple of Manhattans for me and Mitch. A leathery woman comes over, chats us up, finds out who we are, and gives us the business card of Bert's new production company, Bert slash Reynolds slash Productions, Inc. She makes a little parlor trick of remembering our names, then leads us over to The Bert. Mitch knows just what to do. Why, Bert Reynolds, he says, I haven't seen you since we did Mass Appeal in Jupiter, Florida, and that was a good ten years ago. How are you? Ten years is an eternity in Hollywood, but for Bert, or one imagines a guy like Bert. Being tangentially involved in the same dinner theater production greases the conversational wheels to a more than ample degree. He doesn't necessarily want to talk to us, but now, at least it's easy. Sure, I remember, he says. Charlie Derning brought down the house nightly. He arches an eyebrow. Nightly. Remember that thing he improvised? Oh, Bert remembers the touch all right. He fixes his gaze upon me, and I'm in the zone. I can almost hear the opening notes of dueling banjos. One night, Charlie enters stage right, and he's tossing a jelly bean in the air. Fifteen, twenty feet in the air. Catches it in his mouth, each time. He never missed. One night, he used chocolate babies. Bert's working the room now, making his way toward a banquette, which he mounts gracefully. The noise dies down as the legend looks out over a room full of industry heavyweights that he's taken pains to gather. He starts with an old story, about him and Eastwood. Years ago, he and Clint were struggling actors in danger of going nowhere. According to the Tinseltown powers that were, Clint Adam's apple was way too prominent. And Bert, who can be strangely alluring when self-deprecating deadpans, and me, I just couldn't act. Big laugh here. The timing is still brilliant. He gets back to Eastwood, recalling a recent conversation in which the squinty one had rasped, Why don't you just act the AGR? Things grow unexpectedly poignant for a moment. He's making a plea for survival. He's saying, Send me some good scripts. I am done with the vanity projects. I'm ditching Deluise, selling my Trans Am, ready to do some real acting. As the room clears, Mitch turns to me and says, What did I tell you, David? A shameless ploy to get work. Now, if you are so inclined, I am off to Don't Tell Mama, where Stanley Michael Hunthausen will be performing a one-man show. Would you like to join me? Stanley Michael Hunthausen is by far the biggest pest in Mitch's coterie of annoying clients. Stanley Michael has enjoyed some modest success with an early play, but his latest efforts aren't gaining traction. Why Mitch keeps him on, I have no idea. But he does, and agents have to feign interest in their clients' work from time to time. I feel roughly the same way about cabaret singers as most people feel about mimes, but I know a good chance to curry favor with my boss when I see one. We grab a cab and head across town. So Mitch, a one-man show, is there a theme? Like many shows of this type, it's based on the life of the singer. Stanley Michael was born to a family of Jews in northern Minnesota. His siblings were already grown up by the time he was born, and his parents were rather old and distant. Consequently, he spent a lot of time on his own in his room, making up stories and so forth, pretending to be one singer or another. Couldn't have been easy growing up a gay Jew in the Midwest. No, David, not a bit easy. Stanley Michael has come a long way. When I first met him, he was the candy boy at the Booth Theater. Being with Mitch at MoMA is one thing, but at Don't Tell Mama, the man is in his element. I hold the door for him, and he enters imperiously, giving a little wink to the pompadoured host and then stops dead. I almost run into the back of him. Why Daniel Ramsdale, I hear him say, how are you? Why Mitch Douglas, how are you, replies my dermatologist. Ramsdale came well-recommended. He's a top doc at NYU, yet he always strikes me as twisted. He always insists that I undress. The thing is, I don't have any problems down there, but Dr. Ramsdale, ostensibly in the name of medical thoroughness, always has to make sure. Get down to your skivvies, he'll say jocularly, like a hockey coach. Then he'll disappear for several minutes. Skivvies. I guess the slang is supposed to be disarming. But I always envision him huddled in a secret room, watching me through a hole as I nervously pace around in my briefs. I step around Mitch, clap the rammer on the shoulder, and I say... I don't care what you say, Dr. Ramsdale. I am not getting down to my skivvies. David, good to see you, he says, uncomprehending. Daniel, says Mitch. How is it you know my assistant, pray tell? Oh, he's your assistant, I see, says the doctor, looking slightly less feral. David's my patient. Really, says Mitch. Tell me, what does he have? Oh, Mitch, I couldn't possibly... Oh, come on now, Daniel. I have a perfect right to know if my assistant has genital warts, don't I? Why would he go to me for genital warts? Well, genitals are made out of skin, last time I checked. Well, he doesn't. Well, that's a relief. No, Mitch, I really must be... <laughs> what about chlamydia? Oh, oh, oh. I vote we change the subject. This is just tacky Mitch. How big is he? Uh, great to see you again, says the rammer, hustling off. That was spectacularly embarrassing. Oh, spare me, David. I did us both a favor. What an odious man. I don't know what in the hell I was thinking when I slept with him. Oh, oh, oh. Now, come on. Let's get drunk. And we do. It helps obscure the vision in my mind of Mitch and the rammer spooning. An assortment of Mitch's salacious friends are at a nearby Spanish restaurant and we meet them there and work our way through a great deal of sangria. The next morning, Mitch is seated at my typewriter, clacking away in an obvious huff, sans pants. Presumably he'd gotten soaked in the downpour I've just made my way through and hung up his trousers to dry in his office. He's just wearing boxers. It's a few minutes before ten when work officially begins, so he's banking on minimal foot traffic. David, what did I tell you? About what, Mitch? About what,
1: Mitch? Clause four paren, little E.
0: What did I tell you? That we have to add the language about the video cassettes. <laughs> yes, David, that we have to add the language about video cassettes. I was going to add it this morning when I got in. When am I meeting with Barbara Guggenheim? This afternoon. Did you write it in the book? I came into your office yesterday afternoon and wrote it on a yellow sticky pad and held it up to you and you said okay. Did you write... Don't you get sassy with me. Did you write it in the book? No. Do you remember what I told you on your first day about the importance of keeping my phone book? I believe you called it the bulwark of any successful agency. David, are you trying to annoy me or are you just stupid? We had a good time last night, Mitch. Can we not just bask in the afterglow for a minute or two? Now, David... I've been doing this for 22 years, and I'm not about to change now. Your job is to obey me. I'm not being willfully disobedient. I don't care about that, David. I just want you to obey me. Okay. Well, say it. Say, I will obey you. This is unnecessary, Mitch. I'm here to assist you. And assist you, I will. But obey implies a sort of master-slave relationship. Exactly, David. Exactly. Somehow, you have managed to stumble upon les mots just. I can't say that. It's against my religion. You will obey me or you will be discharged. Hearing the words, I will obey you, spring from my lips, surely ranks among my life's low points. Yes, you will. Now, David, it never hurts to learn your place in the pecking order. Because someday, Lord willing, you'll have someone who will obey you too. that's not really what I'm after. Really? And what are you after? Did you happen to read yesterday's obit of Pinky Lee in the Times? He initially planned on... David. Mitch. Go get me my pants. They're on the heating vent in my office. <laughs> Mitch Douglas's office. Ah, Stanley Michael, the man of the hour. You must be feeling well. You were really in command last night. Oh, you were there? I had to make a swift exit, but I must say, you actually got me a little misty there when you sang Send in the Clowns. <laughs> and Lord knows that's been done to death. Well, thanks. I think. And I loved your scat singing on Green Dolphin Street. Scat singing? I'll get Mitch. I write Hunthausen's name on a yellow post-it in overly large print and hold it in front of Mitch's face. He snatches the phone from me. Why, Stanley Michael Hunthausen, how are you? Then, placing his palm over the receiver, he whispers through clenched teeth, My pants. Now. In Mitch's office, I gaze down on Central Park. I survey the framed thing, commemorating two million dollars in sales of Kalinetics for the hips, thighs, and buttocks. The contracts on his desk, his leather couch, the bust of Truman Capote. Eventually, I see his pants. A minute later, I emerge from his office, wearing them. Mitch is capacious through the middle, so the trow, which are almost dry by now, fit comfortably over my own, although they end several inches above my ankles. As I slip my coat off the back of my soon-to-be former desk chair, where he's still busy typing, Mitch looks up, but doesn't put it together at first. I'm already around the corner and heading toward the elevator when I hear him bellow, You take my fucking pants off! I still hear him as the elevator doors close. Not long afterward, I run into Gordon Cotto on 6th Avenue. I tell him I'm writing a few short stories and ask if it'll be okay if I could send him a few. He says, sure. A few weeks later, Gordon writes back saying he wasn't even sure that what I'd written qualified as short stories.
1: David, these two contract folders, Marilyn and Nonsense 2, can be put in the contract file. In other words, they have been concluded.
0: Next up, I discover that Amor Fu is not a Dave Grohl tribute band. Check out IamTheFly.org for a mix of songs excerpted here and more. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend.